Hey, you guys, I want to tell you about an organization that is very dear to us. Hope Heals Camp is a truly unique offering in the world. Just this summer, Kurt had this great opportunity to attend one of the camps. I'd love to hear you tell us about that, Kurt. Thanks, Beth. You're right. I had the chance to attend Hope Heals Camp, as you can see from my T-shirt, an opportunity to spend time with the organization founded by our friends Jay and Catherine Wolf. And the Hope Heals Camp creates an opportunity for adults and children alike, people with disabilities, to come to a space where they can be cared for and be nurtured and nourished. And where I also discovered not only that I had the chance to be healed in certain ways, but that we discover that we all have disabilities. It's just that some of us, uh, it's more visible than for others. And so I was just really excited and humbled by being able to be part of this and really love that we're having the opportunity to support and to promote this camp. There is no other space in existence today like Hope Heals Camp. And we have a great opportunity to support this amazing organization. We can help scholarship families with disabilities to come to camp for free through a tax-deductible donation. Every donation makes a difference, and $1,500 allows a family of four to attend for the entire week. Go to hopeheals.com forward slash donate. That's hopeheals, H-O-P-E-H-E-A-L-S dot com forward slash donate and join us in giving to this great organization. Welcome to the Being Known podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Hello, Kurt. Hey, Pep. Doing good today? I am, now that I'm talking to you. It's great to see you. We are, yeah, right on. we are here today, and we are on episode nine of this season of the Being Known podcast, and we are going through the book, The Soul of Shame. We are going to be in chapter eight today, which is titled Redeeming Shame in Our Nurturing Communities. <laughs> uh, you weren't really sure if you wanted to name today's episode. I, I wasn't. I wasn't positive. I wasn't positive about it. Um, so, Kurt, this was a great chapter. Um, excited to hear you talk about this today and and talk with you about this chapter. And the the stories in here are really good and the information. So let's jump right in. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we've, we've been talking about this topic of shame and as it exists kind of in our, in our experience, but then also r- reminding ourselves that our experience is one in which we are embedded in a story. And we all kind of get that. It's just that we often don't pay attention to the story that we're actually in. And one of the most important things for us to discover is that the stories that we live in, not only the story that I live in, but where it is that I actually learn which story that is, right? The place where I learn that I am in a story and what the story is that I'm in are the, the I mean, the early places where we learn that are in these, and, and, and therefore also the place where evil wants to come and disintegrate and disrupt that storytelling, disrupt the story right from the beginning, just as it did in Genesis. It wants to do that from the beginning. Those stories are told most primally in the earliest places in those places where we dwell in our early years. That would be our family. And for those of us who are people of faith, it would be in our church. And then in, at least in our culture, as we are growing up, the places where we spend the most time in the first two decades of our lives are 
in our places of education, where we learn. And in some respects, those three places, our family, our churches, and our schools, are the primary, we might say that we are their, their primary learning centers for us. We are learning about the world. And one of the things that I would want to highlight is that these, these are also the places, that, these are the contexts that we occupy when we are most neuroplastically flexible. So our brains are most flexibly adaptive and able to take on and take in all the messages, all the things that we are taught about the way the world is and the things that we learn about who we are in those worlds. We are most easily moldable, if you will, in those three primary places in which we are nurtured. We call them our nurturing communities. And it's here, uh, before I get right, really into the text of, of the book, uh, it's here that I want to just um, reference the work of someone who I think has demonstrated a hopeful and necessary capacity to help us learn about the story of the Bible. Because what we've, what we've said from the beginning is that we believe that we're living in this grand narrative, the, the biblical narrative, this biblical narrative, this grand arc and where do we learn that? We learn that in the Bible. And, uh, but I'd have to say that personally, like, you know, if you were to ask me, well, what's the story that the Bible tells? I might give you the, the standard line that I would say that, uh, you know, I, I grew up in, a, in an evangelical, and by evangelical, I don't mean, I mean the way it would have been defined in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s when it first emerged, not, not evangelical the way it now has kind of been hijacked, but an evangelical Protestant community, an evangelical Quaker community. And I had, we had a certain way of understanding that, but I, I think that the difficulty is for, for me is that it's, uh, I read the Bible and I read it, whether I know it or not, I read it through the lens of a modern day Westerner. Mm -hmm. And so when I read the history of the Bible, I read it the way that we teach ourselves history. I, when I read the you know, you know, was there a real serpent in the garden? You know, did the sun really stand still for Joshua? I mean, all these, and I, well, that's not possible. So if that's not possible, then how, where else is the Bible? All these ways of which we have no idea that, like, I'm reading the Bible in a way that the Bible was never intended to be read. No one would ever read Tolstoy or Dorothy Sayers, for example, uh, and just read their read their stories and say, oh, that's a nice story, you know. N no, no one would read The Idiot. No one would read, you know, um, A Good Man is Hard to Find and just say, oh, this is a story that stands on its own. No, if you read all of Sayer's work, if you read, the, like, she is trying to say something beyond what is just on the pages. And so even though it's beautiful literature, there's also a purpose for why she's writing it the way she's writing it. Right. Like any great movie, like a great movie. And, and the Bible is, above all else, a, like one of the most sophisticated pieces of literature that's ever been written and collected and so forth and so on. And, and so how we approach it uh, is part of why we have so many difficulties today. And I would say that evil wants to use shame even to interrupt the way we read the Bible, how we come to understand even the stories about that. And so... Tim Mackey and his colleagues have developed this thing called the Bible Project. And to all of our listeners, I would say, if you have any questions, if, if like I, by all means, uh, go to a thing called the Bible Project. You can Google this and find it. And uh, 
take as much time as you can to wade into as much as whatever it is that they have to offer. Because I think that with, with Tim's work, you, you we will come to see that the Bible was written in a certain way and intended to be read in a certain way that we often don't do. And in the same way, I would say this, that the Bible reflects that our lives were intended to be written in a certain way and not read in another way. Mm. We read our lives in a way that they were never meant to be read. Hmm. Because we read our lives through a lens of shame, and it, we, we've been doing this since the beginning. And that's just one of the mechanisms that evil wants to use to shape and change who we are and to help us maintain our posture of fear and violence. Uh, but I just want to put that plug in because when we, when we talk about these primary areas of family and church and school, these are the areas where we don't just learn about the stories, we learn about how those stories are supposed to be told and retold and read and written and so forth and so on. And we end up misreading them, mistelling them, misinterpreting them, largely because we don't have the fundamentals. I love your Bible excite- project is a great way. Yeah, I love your excitement about this, and I can't wait to check it out. I've not uh, spent any time in there yet, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you for letting us know about that. Yeah. And so that, I mean that, that that's just a segue. It segues us right into this first story when we want to talk about our first families. That we are like that shame wants to operationalize itself in these very primal places where we come into the world. And in the book, we, we, you know, we, we explore Eric's story. Eric is this high school senior who kind of walks in and says to his parents, I'm not going to go to college. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm, I'm not doing that. And I'm, by the way, this faith thing that you've been inculcating me with all these years, like, I don't want to have anything to do with that either. And his parents, Dominic and Joan, are like, they don't, they don't know what to do with this. And they, you know, they, they, they find themselves in my office because, you know, he's upset. They call me and I said, like, well, I don't have a conversation with Eric and we do. And he starts to talk about his experience, his experience that is one in which, you know, if you were to look at their family, there was nothing overtly painful or problematic about their family on, you know, at first glance. Except that when you would talk with them about the nature of how people would kind of communicate, the one thing that you'd find is that uh, this one phrase kept coming up over and over again. We only expect them to, uh, we only expect Eric and the rest of our kids to do their best. Do their best, yeah. Just yeah. do their best. Which seems like now, a benign that, statement. When you when you say it, it seems like, you know, of course we want you to do your best. Just do your best. It's like you, you say that in order to take the pressure off a lot of times, yeah. right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. We don't expect you to get straight A's. Right. If the best you can do is B's, okay, that like that. You're you're right. But the subtle associated message is, but we do expect you to do your best. At everything. At everything. Right. And I remember him being in college, and my this college this psychology professor said, you know, there one, you know, one of the one of the least helpful things that parents can do is to say to their children, we don't expect perfection; we just expect you to do your best. You know, with the implication being at everything, and of course, no one has the energy or time or capacity to do their best at everything. Right. I we 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 just can't do that. Yeah. It's just so hard to do that, and so for Eric, it became this. Every like I got to do my best, do my best at everything, including faith and including school and all these things. And he eventually just kind of got sick of it because it wasn't making any sense. It wasn't helping. It wasn't making any sense for him. And so when he says like I'm done with this, of course, what this did was to raise all kinds of anxiety for both Dominic and Joan, his parents. And we come to discover that 
Eric had kind of been, had become like the receptacle for some trickle-down effect of both Dominic and Joan's families and elements of their own stories that they had not really addressed. Dominic came from an anger-ridden family of where his father was a raging alcoholic. And so we're always going to work pretty hard to keep, you know, we're going to do the right thing to make sure that, you know, chaos doesn't reign. And Joan had come from a family where her parents had divorced when she was seven. And the whole sense of just being anxious that somebody's going to leave, like always, somebody's going to leave, somebody's going to leave, somebody's going to leave. And so we're always making sure that we're just going to do the right thing to make sure that somebody doesn't leave. So everybody's working really hard to protect themselves against these catastrophic, these potentially catastrophic outcomes. And so the way they kind of merge their stories together without, of course, knowing that this is what they're doing, and you know, a, kind of like a, a, a kinder, gentler way to say this to our kids, instead of being angry or making them anxious, is to just say, we just expect you to do your best over and over and over again. Right. Until Eric's decision kind of put every, kind of, kind of pulled the curtain back on all this. And what they eventually came to discover, I mean, Eric, you know, kind of came, you know, he became the front end of the plow and he starts to plow a furrow because he's in my office doing work. And at one point I said, well, is it, what would it be like for you, to, if it was okay, if I shared some of these things with your family about, you know, not all the, de- not all the details, but, you know, the, your experience of them. And he was, and he, and he was, not everybody would do this, but he was willing to do this. And I shared with him, like, you know, this is the story, like it's the, the whole notion of, as it turns out, even though you're not asking perfection, that's exactly what the message is that you're sending, whether you know it or not. And this, of course, led then to our having, oh, we, we got Joan to see a therapist, we got Dominic to see somebody because there was just all of this shame that is being kind of directed at Eric without anybody even knowing it. As we've said, evil is very subtle. It doesn't come at us, you know, front on it obliquely, right? It, it, it just, just do your best, right? And they were able to make headway in that, and and eventually able to speak with each other more vulnerably because, of course, for both Dominic and Joan, when they first started to talk about the realities of their stories, I mean, there was so much grief. Hmm. I mean, Joan's anxiety is largely about her working to hold back, you know, Lake Mead. Right. Like, you know, like she's like the Hoover Dam having to hold back Lake Mead from all the fear that she has that somebody's going to leave if I don't do my best to make sure that everything is okay. We don't like obey God and go to the, do all the right things, cross the T's, dot the I's and so forth and so on. We're going to do it with kindness, but we're still going to have to do that. And so as they were able to be more vulnerable with themselves, they could then be vulnerable with each other, Dominic and Joan. And as they started to do that, Eric started to report like a viscerally felt sense of like the air in the room in the house is changing. And they became more open and willing to hear Eric talk about his own doubts and concerns and cares. And they were able to validate that because they had their own. They, they're like, oh, yeah, now I'm less afraid to talk about the shame in my own life because I'm, I'm getting work done with that. And as their vulnerability, you know, we've talked about these healing clouds of witnesses and the vulnerability that is necessary for shame to be healed. And they began to do this in their family. And interestingly enough, it changed over time, not overnight, but over time, it changed all of their ways of imagining Jesus. 
that Jesus was no longer someone who was saying to each of them, no, I love you. I, all I ask for you is just do your best. He was no longer asking that question. He was no longer making that statement. He was saying, I want you to tell me where you are. I want you to tell me what's hard. Now, it doesn't mean that I won't put demands on you. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to ask you to, like, you know, pray for the people that you don't like. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to ask you to be curious about your consumption, be curious about your anxiety, be curious about these things. It doesn't mean that I'm going to not ask you to stop looking at porn. I'm going to, I'm going to place some demands on you, but those demands are the things that I place on you, not looking for you to do your best, but because I want you to allow me to love you. I want you to allow me to love you. And that's what's often so difficult for us. Shame won't let me let others love me. And so if this is where I begin in my home with this, it's not then surprising that like, if you can imagine like Dominic and Joan were taking Eric and his siblings off to church and churches are populated with families who are just there to do their best. And that's what we all want to do. Like we want to go to church and the church becomes like a hospital, right? It's a hospital where we're all coming and we all are working really hard to be loving, kind people of the fruit of the spirit of God. And we want to do our best at this. Or at least look like we're doing our best at this. At the at least look like I'm doing my best. That's right. I want to come and at least I want to look yeah. like I'm doing my best. Pretend that we just didn't. My wife and I just didn't have that fight on the way to church. And oh my gosh, <laughs> walking with smiles on our face. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, how, yeah. Yeah. But I, I just I, I love the picture of vulnerability within the family. It's not always an easy thing to do. I think for parents, especially to, you know. You, some, some of us, I think, want that vulnerability to be a one-way street where we want our kids to share everything mm-hmm. that, you know, that they're mm-hmm. experiencing, but mm-hmm. we don't necessarily want to share our, you know, obviously you, want to, you would want to do it age appropriately and all that kind of thing, but our stories where there's things that we're not proud of, where there's shame and where there's, you know, to share that with your kids is powerful, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we often tell parents that, the, that one of the most important gifts that you can give to your kid is the gift of revealing yourself to them mm. at developmentally appropriate moments. Right. You know, I'm not going to say the same things to my six-year-old that I would say to my 20, to my 16 or 26 or 36-year-old child. I say different things to them, di- share different elements of my life. But as I do, the very act of doing it sends them the message that, A, I'm not afraid of God being in this story with me, and I'm not afraid of being in your story with you. And they also hear that they don't have to be afraid of being in their own story. They're not going to be in their story by themselves. Right. This act of vulnerability disallows shame from continuing to build a fortress, not just within a single person, but within systems. Yeah. And so as we dismantle shame within the context of families, those families then go off to church and begin to populate churches in which the same kinds of things take place. We tell people that no system in the world exists apart from it being modeled off the family. Hmm. Even church is modeled as a system from off the family, right? There's a head, right? If the head is a, a two, let's say it's a two-parent you know, family unit for, for argument's sake, 
We know that that's not all families, but a two-parent, to, to the degree that that's... And then we have, typically, if, if children come into the family, those children come in, you've got an oldest, and then the next, and the next, and the next. You might, you know, however many kids you have, and, and they have different stages of development, hierarchy, and so forth and so on. And that's exactly what happens in any other system that we encounter. And so we then take, as we like to say, we take our families to church, we take our families to work, we take our families everywhere we go. The question is, to what degree have I done the work of allowing God to redeem the shame in my life, in my family, such that I don't repeat it in my workplace, that I don't repeat it in my church, that I don't end up like looking, because we, we, you know, we, we go looking for work that looks like our family, whether we know it or not. This is what I mean when I say we take our families to work. Right. And so we then think about the church, the local church. We move from the family to the church. And one of the folks that I've worked with, his name's Brady, and he was a pastor of a, of a you know, young, growing church. And, you know, Brady was one of these guys who was getting it done. I mean, he was, and he was the genuine article. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't putting on a show. He the genuine article and a guy who's, you know, serious about spiritual formation, serious about loving his congregation, but also worried about running out of gas when he wants to do his best. Right. And the pressure that he felt, like as 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 the church started to flourish, you know, very quickly, right? Things start to happen. And the evil one comes calling. And just like Jesus, who comes out of the water at his baptism, and like his ministry is before him, and then he heads into the desert. And the devil wants to invite him, as, as Jesus considers what is before him, the devil wants him to believe, wants him to, like, I want you to transcend who you were made to be as a human in order for you to get what you can get. And I want you to transcend who you were made to be, which is what we've been doing since Eden. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. And there's all these pressures that will come to Brady to now begin to transcend who he was made to be. He's made to be the pastor of a flock of people. And this happens because systems grow. And now you're not just the flock, the, the pastor of, you know, 20 people or 150 people. Now you're the pastor of 1,500 people before you know it. And like Brady can't pastor 1,500 people. And so we, we, we you know, we, we construct systems. Before you know it, there's this pressure to like, well, what are we, now what are we going to do with 1500? Now what are we going to do with like, you know, as these things happen. And as we talked about his story, his also was one in which there was this sense of pressure and he, and I had asked him, so who are the people in your church whose job it is to care for you? And, you know, he's like, like so many pastors, he's like, I, I don't, but that's my job. Like it's, it's a one way street here. And yes, I do have a couple of, you know, some, I've got elders who's ostensibly their job is to care for me. And that's true. And I said, well, so what is it like for you to consider telling them about the things that you're worried about? And of course, everything that gets conjured so quickly is this notion of they're going to find out who I really am. I'll be out of a job. Yeah. That'll tear everything down. Yeah. You know, we like to say that the, uh, uh, we, 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 when we, when we described our, uh, when we, when we were in our series on trauma and trauma in the church and we talked about hospital acquired infection. Right. Right. This notion that, uh, the church is very much like a hospital, right? Where we all come cause we're sick and then we're surprised why other, why, why, why there are other people who are so unhealthy who are here. 
but the thing is, is that uh, pastors also need a place where they can be a patient. Yeah. And so the church as a hospital is difficult until, and or unless as a pastor, you also have the place, have the space to be vulnerable yourself. And so, you know, Brady's story was one that was somewhat unusual in that he started to talk, you know, he had a conversation with one and then a second elder that he felt particularly close to. And their bottom line was, hey, bring it on. Reminds me of a friend of mine who uh, is the pastor of a church in Northern California. And this is a guy who also, not unlike Brady, you know, took over the pastoral role of a church and it continued to grow and grow and grow. And then they wanted to build a new, build a new building and so forth and so on. And he was feeling overwhelmed with all of the growth. What am I supposed to do? And he took, he took a very short sabbatical and uh, went away. And, you know, he made the mistake of going to hang out with, you know, people like Dallas Willard, who, if our listeners know anything about Dallas Willard, know if you're, I mean, not any longer because he's passed away, but if you get in the room with Dallas Willard, like for 10 minutes, let alone for two weeks, you know, you need to be prepared for things to be different by the time your visit with him is done. And this pastor was, you know, he came back and he, he said, like, I, I realize that my mission is about formation of my people. My mission is not about growth of attendees or money or buildings or whatever. Like, my mission is about uh, forming people into the image of Jesus. And if we're going to do that, we're going to have to do that more slowly. We're going to have to divert funding to other things. And, and he was sure that when he came back from his sabbatical, that he, and he was going to meet with his elders, and he was going to say, here's where I am. Here's where I think we need to go. And he was sure that they were going to give him his pink slip. And oddly enough, to a person, they all said, we've been waiting for this. We're going to saddle up. And within six months, the church's attendance dropped by over a third, Hmm. including some of their biggest donors. Because they weren't able, I mean, like, you know, kind of like the rich young ruler, like we, we are, we are so committed to doing our best that we have a hard time being aware that my longing to do the work of beauty and goodness in the world is so easily and subtly hijacked by evil with shame Hmm. that I forget that the mission of God is to change me into becoming his son and to change you into his son and to change Amy into his daughter. Like that, this is what he's trying to do. The mission is not to be measured in terms of buildings and money and so forth and, or, or attendance in that sense. And so this notion of what happened with, with, with Brady was that he began to, you know, employ a lot of the work, you know, we've talked about confessional communities here. And so he began to employ these particular tactics that their mission was going to be to no longer allow evil to have a foothold by using shame in their congregation. Hmm. And everything about the work that they began to do, you know, not everybody was ready to do this. Like my friend in California, not everybody was ready to, to make this work. But they really took this on and took this seriously. And of course, you know, it does, it disrupts things. 
There are people who were not happy with Brady about this. There are people who thought that what he was doing was like not, it was not the gospel. This is not what we're supposed to be doing. We're not about that. We're not about telling our stories more truly. We're about preaching the gospel. Right. As if those are different things. Right. And so those are those, those but, but when we do this in our church family, when we have it in our family, in our church families, when we do the work of vulnerability, when we do the work of dismantling shame, we really create space. We are, part, we are co-laboring with Jesus. We create space where in which the Spirit comes in and starts to enable us to take the, the hard steps of serving our neighbors, being more generous, being kinder, being living at a slower pace, and all those kinds of things, because... My pace necessarily has to be slower if I'm going to have the conversation with you about all my vulnerability. I can't just come in and like spend an hour preaching on a text of three verses and expect that to be transformational all by itself in some kind of magical way. Of course, not diminishing the power of three verses of the Bible, but I think we get what we're talking about here. Right. wanted to let you know about something that's going to be happening on October 28th, which is a Friday. It is the second annual Center for Being Known Connections Conference. You want to talk a little bit about that for us, Kurt? Yeah, thanks, Pep. We're really excited. Some of our listeners may be familiar with the Connections Conference that we had last year. And this year, it is going to be a one-day event, Friday, October 28th, as you mentioned. And the purpose of the Center for Being Known is to serve as a clearinghouse, but also to develop an association of those folks who are really interested in pursuing more about what it means for us to not just learn about what we're doing at the interface of interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation, but how we apply this in our day-to-day lives. Mm -hmm. And in particular, how we apply this work in particular domains of our lives, whether we are working in business or education or in the arts or in the mental health field or whatever it is that we're doing. If we're working in farming, whatever it is that we're doing, we really want to invite people to be curious about what is God up to using this work that he's given us to do, and how does that enable us to flourish in particular ways in those particular domains? And so the conference is offering four really, really seasoned speakers, people who know their craft and who know their worlds, four speakers, one in business, one in education, one in spiritual formation, one in the mental health field, that are all going to help us dig deeper into what it means for us to apply these principles in their particular domains and also help spark imagination for everyone else who comes uh, to do the same, no matter what that domain is that they long to see God do more work in. I'm really excited for this this year. You know, last year we did just a virtual event, and this Mm -hmm. year we are doing a hybrid event where you can actually come to the event, be there in person with us, And if you aren't able to make the trip, wherever you are, there is a virtual option as well. Go to thecbk.org to register and get all the information. Um, I will actually be there. I'll be emceeing the event this year, which I have... Dude, okay, okay. I've no idea why. I've been chomping at the bit. I've been chomping at the bit to say, like, yes, like, you're the reason people should come. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, let's just I have t- had let's so many this. people ask the question. I've had so many people ask the question. So, Kurt, what's the story behind the most beautiful man in the world? And I want to say, come to the CBK conference and get your answer. Oh, my gosh. And I tell you what, we have decided to do something really different as well. Uh, if, <laughs> if you are coming, if you're in town, uh, then the night before, on the Thursday before, on the 27th, we are going to record a live version of the Being Known podcast. And Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're <laughs> and we're all going to be there. Amy will be there. It's yes. all. It's just. It's going to be. It's going to be great. And I, uh, we're going to hold this uh, at a place called McLean Presbyterian Church. It's going to be a beautiful venue. And you know, I, I would love for people to come. You know, for the CBK conference, come for our live recording of uh, the podcast. And I and I would say I would want people to come. Certainly, uh, come prepared to uh, find joy. Mm-hmm. Come prepared to find connections with other people, to be nourished. Um, but also during the conference, uh, come prepared to do a little bit of work. Come prepared to, you know, do some some work of, of some rigor because we're going to invite people. To, we're going to in, invite you to uh, let God uh, into spaces that perhaps we've not always even been aware that he wants to come into. But uh, overall, I'm just thrilled at what we've got on the docket for this conference and for the podcast recording and uh, Pepper, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you're going to be able to MC this and that we'll get to do the recording the night before. I'll do my best to not ruin the whole event. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited about it. So go check it out at the CBK, T-H-E-C-B-K dot org to register. If you've been listening to the Being Known podcast, you know that trauma and its healing are something to which we pay a great deal of attention. So when the women at Hun's Honey reached out to partner with us, it was really just a no-brainer. Hun's Honey is a social enterprise dedicated to creating dignity and purpose for and with women who have survived significant trauma, be that of addiction, trafficking, generational poverty, or abuse. Before being employed at Hun's Honey, these women commit to a holistic healing process through a life development program, free counseling, workshops, and building community. You know, Kurt, recently Amy and I had a great opportunity to tour Hun's Honey, and I really have to tell you that we were both just blown away by the work that they're doing there mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. heart that Mandy and Sarah and Jordan have for their women that they serve and the work that they do. Mm-hmm. We were so impressed with these women who are bravely working to overcome the trauma that they've suffered. And here's how you can help. So Hun's Honey, they sell home, body, and honey goods such as sugar scrubs, soap bars, beeswax candles, and raw honey. All of their products are filled with high-quality natural ingredients using locally sourced honey. You know, in fact, they raise their own bees, and they harvest their own honey themselves. And we heard stories about the healing process of working with bees. One of the women uh, had a story that she was saying that but as you approach the bees, before you approach the bees— they could feel any anxiety that you may be having. So you really have mm. to sort of go through mm. this meditative, mindful process of, mm. of calming yourself before you approach the hive or you're going to get stung, which I thought wow. was just fascinating. Wow. Wow. Living, breathing experience of life-changing work. And 100% of Hun's Honey's profits go to employing women survivors of trauma. 100%. So, folks, your purchase has a purpose. Mm. It paves the way for women to rebuild their lives in concrete ways. 
So here's what you can do. You go check it all out. They've got great gifts and everything else there at hunshoney.com. That's H-O-N-S-H-O-N-E-Y.com. And use the coupon code BEINGKNOWN. That's B-E-I-N-G-K-N-O-W-N for 20% off your order. This is a great gift that has generational impact. That's Hun's Honey. And so we move then from family to the church and then to this other extended area, this place where we spend most of our waking hours from the time we are about four years of age until the time most of us are about 17 or 18. Most of our daytime hours are spent in some kind of learning environment. And one of the things that I like to, I like to describe learning as a, as, as a, as a function of which in, in which we declare our vulnerability. To learn, in fact, is to say, I don't know things. Right. That's why I'm in school. It's not because of what I do know. It's because of what I don't know. In fact, we would say that learning involves the incorporation of novel experience. Like I'm incorporating something that I didn't know yesterday. From the time that we're born, we come out of the uterus and we are now having to incorporate a new thing and I need your help helping me interpret what this new thing is. And we do this pretty well by first, like we, like children have very little difficulty with this. Young children have very like, we're showing them, they're not worried about what they don't know. They're, they're just learning new things. They're just like soaking it in, eating it up, learning new things. And so we're learning. Learning is a declaration of our vulnerability. Like kids, yes, they come, they have to, the teacher has to help them. Like they, they give them a nap when they're in kindergarten. They still take a nap. They, all these things, but children are incorporating novel experience. And they're doing so often with joy and curiosity. And then at some point, we start to make the turn, often around, now it's getting younger and younger, because we're seeing children at younger and younger ages with anxiety disorders, and I can assure you it's not because there's an anxiety virus that has suddenly broken out here in Northern Virginia, but because at younger and younger ages, we begin to apply anxiety to the learning process. And anxiety begins to have more authority. You need to do well on this test so that you can get into this middle school, so that you can get into this high school of your choice, so that you can go to the college of your choice, or, or, or whatever the thing is. I, that's the thing here in Northern Virginia for many, many people. Instead of cultivating a culture of curiosity. And this is where we come back to like the fundamental element of all learning, whether it's in family or church or in school is this question of being known. If I'm the child, if, it, if I'm being known by my teacher, my teacher is aware that I don't know things. My teacher's offering me things. My teacher wants to inculcate this. My teacher wants me to master the material. And so there's going to be a way for me to do that. But the issue is not about cracking the whip to get me to be able to spit something out on a test. The issue is, am I able to become more of who I was more than who I was three months ago. And not just because I happen to have a boatload of facts in my head that I didn't have then. Am I becoming more and more of the person that I really, really want to be? 
But that process requires that somebody else is giving me the experience of being known. I learned that in my family. That's what we. That's what church is about. Right? I'm, I come because I, I need the experience of being known by God. I don't go just so that I can know about God. I have to have the experience of being known by God because I'm just so aware of what I need. Often even what I don't need. And so we talk about Cultivating a, a, a culture of curiosity creates the opportunity for learning to become that notion of fearlessly discovering what I don't know. I'm, um, I'm reminded of a, uh, of a consultation I, I did with a school in the Northeast. And uh, it was a school that was committed to serving underserved populations. And the teachers were committed and people of great integrity and working really hard. But part of the issue was, of course, you know, teachers depend upon the families of children, the parents of children to supplement and help support whatever it is that they're actually doing in school. And so there are lots of things that they would have for parents to help the children do. And these were families that didn't always have the kinds of resources that other more affluent families would have. And so the, the teachers would worry not just for their kids because, they're, because the kids' parents weren't kind of capable always, but when those parents were not capable, the teachers would then worry that because of that, I need to bring more to the table as the teacher to make this happen. Now, as, is, as, as often happens in institutions that are committed to the next right, good, beautiful thing, these were teachers who deeply, uh, teachers of great conviction, great integrity, and they worried that they weren't doing their job well enough, because we're here on a mission with and for God. It's Christian school, with and for God in this community. And in this respect, we end up then saying, oh my goodness, I'm doing all this pressure, but I don't say any of this. Now, what was interesting was that I spent two days with these folks. And in the middle of all this, it, you know, I, I'm, I'm having individual conversations with these teachers and I'm asking like, well, so what happens when you tell this, when you say this in the faculty meetings? Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that because I'm, I'm too worried about what's, what they're going to think. And before you know it, these teachers are naming these things in their community, in their group. And of course, you know, one teacher says, oh, and they realize like they're not by themselves. Like everybody's thinking this. Everybody's worried about this. But the notion of being vulnerable in that space, they're like, oh my gosh, like it's, it, it's, oh, it's like I'm the student in the classroom who's acknowledging that I don't know. That's the truth. Like, I don't know. That's why I'm in school. It's not because of what I... I worry that I go to school to demonstrate to you what I know. When that's not why I'm there. I'm there because I don't know things. And so discovering what I don't know. And then, you know, the work of Carol Dweck, I think, is really instructive for this on this. In this, in this Carol Dweck is this psychologist. We, we've probably talked about her before. We have, yeah. The book Mindset Research. And this notion that paying attention to hard work as much as, if not more so, than the work being accomplished. I love this. Yeah, and this, this notion that when our children are working hard, that we can say to them, if they do well or if they don't do well, like just acknowledging how hard the work is that they're doing to acknowledge this. I, I, might, I don't know if I've told this story before or not, that when our son was in a math class when he was in high school and we went to the back-to-school night, we met with this math teacher in the room, and there were only about like eight or ten students in this class, and this math teacher said, I've never been in a, I've never been in a meeting like this. I think our son was a junior, and he's, he's in this group of, of, of guys, it was an all-boys school, in this group of guys who are all really good students, and they're all used to getting A's. And have I told this story before? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Yeah, and uh, 
So we're, the parents are sitting around, and this teacher says to us, the first thing that he says to us, it just, just oh gosh, I, it still gets me. When he, he says, the first thing I want to tell you is, I love your boys. Like, what high school teacher tells the parents, I love your boys? They mean the world to me. And the second thing I want to tell you is this. Your boys are used to doing really well in school. They work hard, and they rightly are, you know, awarded for it. He said, but it's very likely that your boys are not going to get A's in this class. And I've told them that. And I've told them you're not going to get A's, not because I'm too hard of a teacher. You're not going to get A's because you're not smart enough, because you're not working hard enough. He said, you're not going to get A's because math is really hard. In fact, it's harder than you have any idea that it is, the kind of math we're going to do. And he would tell them this over and over again. And you know, these boys didn't like to like sure. get B's, right? Like, let alone C's. Like, they don't, they're not, they, they, they want the A. And I remember feeling, oh my gosh, I could study with this guy. I could work for this guy. I like, my son can live with this guy for the rest of his life. Because this is a guy who's telling the truth about the world. That the world is really hard, but your work that is effective, I can draw you into it and continue to do it because we're not going to do this by ourselves. You're going to do that. We're going to do this together. And that's really essentially what Carol Dweck's work really proposed. And then we go on to this, uh, for our listeners, uh, Ellen Langer, L-A-N-G-E-R, Ellen Langer um, uh, is, a, is a psychologist and she's done a lot of work around the question of mindful learning and this whole notion that answers to questions are so much more uh, available to we, we are much more likely to be curious if we see answers as being possibilities rather than certainty. We want to have all the answers like laid out there to check all the boxes. And this is another thing that shame wants to do. Shame wants us to believe that we can and should be certain about everything in life or as much as life as we can be. And we do this in order to regulate our fear, in order to regulate the, the possibility that I will be ashamed. And if I can be certain, that's the closest step that if I know all, if I know all that can be known, then I don't need you. <laughs> I get to be like God. Yeah, I remember once when my kids were little, uh, my daughter looked at me and she said, "Dad, do you know everything yet?" <laughs> <laughs> to which I said, "Of course." <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I wonder, she's how old now? Well, she's 22 now, so, yeah. Yeah, so I, yeah. I, wonder, I wonder when she's going to find out that that's you know, maybe not, <laughs> yeah, think, not quite true. I, I think that ship sailed you about... Think, you think, but, you wait, I'm just, do you think she's going to have to wait until she's 30? No, I think it was probably about three when they figured it out. I wasn't trying yeah. to hide it. Mm. Well, for all these things, I think what we're really trying to say is that shame... Shame tries to lock us into these boxes where we try to know as much as we can know, wherein learning is really about vulnerably expanding our comfort and confidence and kind of dancing with the world, incorporating the world and being with the world, acknowledging that there are things that I don't know. And I'm really stewarding that relationship, and I'm not trying to control it or consume it or be certain about it. And in our application for today, I just want us to, to think about this. I want us, as, as you're able, to consider each of the three primary nurturing communities we've discussed in terms of your own story, whether that's your family, whether that's the church, or whether the school in which you, and if you're a teacher listening to this, you're in that 
you're, you're in that system. And just be curious about where and how were you encouraged to be curious rather than needing to be certain. Encouraged to be vulnerable instead of needing to be impregnable and of all knowledge. Where and how did shame play a role in dominating your learning process, as it were? And how do you wish those experiences had been different? And if you're now in the business of, if you're a parent, if you're working in a church, if you're in education, if you're now stewarding children and their learning experiences, how can you help cultivate an environment of greater curiosity? Consider ways in which you can put Carol Dweck's or Ellen Langer's work to work for you in learning to praise hard work as much as you do accomplishment and to being open and curious about the answers to questions as we are certain about those answers. And then, of course, as always, uh, consider sharing this with someone that you trust. Again, I want to just circle back and say all this begins with this question of in what story do we believe we're living? Mm. And uh, back, you know, citing our friend Tim Mackey and the Bible Project as a way for us to once again be reminded that it is in these primal places where we learn our first stories. And we want to know that we are learning them the way they are intended to be told and to be heard so that we can do the same thing about our own stories themselves. Great. Thank you, Kurt. Encourage everybody to take advantage of the application for this week. And next week, we will be uh, on the final chapter of the book. So be sure to read ahead for next week. And uh, until then, Kurt, I love you. It's, uh, it's great being with you. Right on, man. Love you too. You too. Till next time. Till next time. And if you are watching on YouTube, Amy's going to be joining us now. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.